If you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Philippians uh, chapter 2. Philippians 2. Where uh, we will continue to look at this um, hymn that the Apostle Paul uh, has, has uh, quoted as part of his broader argument. So we're going to be looking uh, this morning at verses 9 through 11, uh, but I'll start reading at verse 1. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray now. Father in heaven, as we uh, read earlier from the Westminster Larger Catechism, um, we can take great comfort as we come to your word that um, by the fact that Jesus is ascended, he reigns, and from his throne he uh, sends gifts to his church. He furnishes his ministers and his people with gifts and graces. And so uh, right now we ask that you would give to us uh, the grace of being able to hear and understand and apply and delight in your word. Because as we come uh, to these few verses, uh, we are speaking of lofty things, of high things, of exalted things. Uh, when Paul spoke of uh, being caught up uh, into the heavens, he, he uh, just gave up in terms of trying to describe uh, what he saw there. He said he could not utter the things that he uh, bore witness to. And we are talking, Lord, about things that uh, feel of a similar grandeur and glory. And so we ask that you would uh, overcome our weakness and that you would lead our hearts to delight more in Jesus, our ruling and reigning King. It's in his name we pray. Amen. As uh, we turn this morning to this uh, great uh, crescendo of this Christ hymn in Philippians 2, 5 to 11. It's a, a brilliant, climactic scene. Uh, we need to begin uh, by resituating ourselves so we can understand what's the payoff uh, that God uh, intends for us in these verses. Paul has been uh, telling the Philippians what it means to conduct themselves as citizens worthy of their calling in the gospel, as we saw in Philippians 1, 27. 
And according to God's uh, undeserved favor, the Philippians had given an ability from God to believe uh, in Jesus and trust in Him alone for uh, salvation. And they've been brought to Christ and they've been brought to uh, one another. They've been united together in the church. But Paul, as we've been seeing, is concerned about the visible expression of unity within the church. True unity uh, requires humility, a looking not only to our own interests, but also to the interests of others, how we can serve and care for other people. And where humility is absent, uh, where proud self-concern is left unchecked, well, the cords of unity will begin to, to fray and even snap, at least visible unity. And knowing that humility runs uh, contrary to our natural sinful inclinations, our, our sin turns us in on ourselves in, in different ways, Paul is piling up support uh, to help us grow low, to grow downward in humility. In verse 1, as we've seen, Paul based his call to humility upon the, uh, the comforts that we've received uh, in the gospel of Christ. In verse 5, we saw how um, uh, we've, uh, since we've been joined to Jesus by faith, we uh, now, by the help of His Spirit, share in His mind, and we're called to nurture and cultivate uh, the way of thinking that belongs to us in Jesus. And then uh, in verses 6 to 8, we see uh, the example of Jesus Christ, who though He was in the form of God, He humbled Himself in service to His Father and in service to His people to the lowest most humble estate that any man could go, the painful and shameful death of the cross. But Christ's story and our story does not end in the depths of humiliation. We know that because of the rest of this Christ hymn, verses 9 to 11, which we're looking at today. Therefore, we begin, which tells us that this is the logical conclusion to Christ humbling himself to the point of death. There's something else that needs to be said. And here's what our text leads us to see. It leads us to see Jesus in his exaltation. And by exaltation, I mean Jesus being elevated, Jesus being lifted up to a place of glory and honor. And Paul gives us this brilliant picture of who Jesus is in his glory and honor to bring us to serve others and to worship Christ. And so to see that this morning, we're going to look first at Jesus' path and then at Jesus' identity, Jesus' path and his identity. So let's start by looking at Jesus' path. Where does he go? Verse 9, with that therefore, represents the hinge or the turning point, not only in this hymn in 5 to 11, but really the, the turning point in our entire confession about who Jesus is. Christ's humiliation, as the theologians speak of the Son of God humbling himself uh, by taking on human flesh for sinners, his humiliation is an essential feature of our Christian co confession. You cannot be a Christian uh, uh, and deny that the things in Christ's humiliation, his incarnation and his giving his life for sinners, uh, the atonement, that these things actually happened. But the Christian message is more than a message about Jesus uh, than about Jesus' humiliation, because if our story ends in verse 8, then Jesus is just another well-intentioned failure. He'd be like any other number of charismatic leaders in the ancient world who died for a cause. The rabbi uh, Gamaliel in, in Acts 5, when he's talking to the Sanhedrin, he mentions some of these men who were revolutionaries who died and their causes uh, just fizzled out. 
Except that we would have to say, in Jesus' case, we'd have to admit that for all his sacrifice and all his service, uh, if we just stayed at the state of his humiliation, that he was either delusional, saying that he would rise from the dead and he didn't, or he was a fraud. He was a charlatan. But verse 9 tells us that this was not the case. It turns the story of the the servant king on its head because it tells us that since he humbly served his father, seeking his father's glory, and since he gave himself in service for our salvation, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the unsurpassed name. Verse 9 gives us the transition from the humiliation of Christ to his exaltation. And Paul, or the hymn that he's using, uh, he's, he speaks in a shorthand. He's, he says it, uh, uh, he speaks very quickly. Whereas in verses 6 through 8, uh, Paul's noted the various steps in Jesus' uh, a descent downward, his laying aside the glories of heaven, uh, his, his being born in the likeness of men, his life of obedience, his dying on the cross. Now Paul simply asserts that the Father exalted the Son. And understand what this means, we need to unpack the four primary movements of Jesus' exaltation, the four steps in his being raised up. And so I want to look uh, uh, this morning at Jesus' resurrection, his ascension, his session, and his return. So first, first, Jesus' path upward to glory begins by his resurrection from the dead. Jesus' body didn't stay in the ground as we celebrated last Sunday uh, in Easter. He didn't stay dead. Nor can we say that the value of Jesus' resurrection is primarily symbolic, as one church leader and politician made headlines for saying this past week. Uh, He caused quite a controversy, and the Washington Post uh, picked it up. Uh, And uh, in their story, they referenced so-called experts who, and this is a quote from the story, noted the wide range of Christian beliefs about the resurrection. Some may see it as literal, others do not. Some may see belief in the resurrection as mandatory to be a Christian, others do not. Well, we can count Paul, Peter, and John, men who actually helped write the Bible, not to mention Jesus himself as among those for whom the bodily resurrection is a mandatory Christian belief. The testimony of these men, not to mention eyewitnesses like Matthew and the historian Luke, was that Jesus was raised from the dead and he walked on the earth bodily for 40 days. Hundreds of witnesses, as 1 Corinthians 15 says, saw him. Not as some spiritual encounter, not like one of those fuzzy visions of the Jedi in Star Wars, but they saw and felt Christ in his resurrected body. Now sometimes people make bold, outlandish claims, but when the pressure is on, uh, when they're under oath, if you will, they'll back off their statements. I didn't really mean it. Uh, You shouldn't have taken it that way. Well, not so with these witnesses. The apostles, under pain of death, uniformly maintained their belief that Jesus had actually bodily been raised from the dead. Jesus' resurrection is not merely a symbol, but as we saw last Sunday from 1 Corinthians 15, it is the first step of the victorious Christ, our Savior, to glory. 
And the second step in Christ's exaltation is his ascension. So after the 40 days in which he walked on the earth, in the presence of eyewitnesses, Jesus was taken up into heaven. Luke records for us in Acts 1, And when Jesus had said these things as they were looking, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. The one whose body was laid in the earth is now lifted up bodily into heaven. This is something that Jesus told his disciples on multiple occasions uh, would happen. He tells them that I am going to the Father. Now we can think about the ascension uh, from our vantage point here on earth. Jesus has left us, so he's no no longer here with us in the flesh. Uh, Instead, from heaven, he he sends his spirit uh, upon his church. And we can think of the ascension uh, like kids might think of a, a parent who watches their parent uh, go off to work on behalf of the family. But as we consider Christ's exaltation, there's another way of looking at it. What was the ascension of Christ like from Christ's perspective? What was the ascension of Jesus like from the perspective of heaven? Well, the best earthly comparison that I can think of, and admittedly it's it's woefully inadequate, would be June 19, 1945. June 19, 1945, you can look up the pictures online in New York City. It was the day that General Dwight Eisenhower, commander of the Allied forces in World War II, returned home. One month prior, uh, the Germans had surrendered, and now Eisenhower, the victorious general, landed on home soil. And four million Americans lined the streets uh, of New York for a ticker tape parade as Eisenhower rode triumphantly through the Canyon of Heroes. Now, if this was the scene for the man who crushed Hitler's forces, a, a, a serious, awful threat, but a threat for only a few years, what would it be like? What would it look like? What would it sound like? to see welcomed back into heaven the God-man who had triumphed over the forces of Satan on the cross. Where the streets of heaven are lined with the Old Testament saints and the angels of heaven, and they see in their midst for the first time the man Jesus Christ, the Lamb who was slain. As one writer put it, no heart can conceive, much less can any tongue express the glorious reception of the human nature of Christ into heaven. He went on to say that apart from the day that is still to come when God completes the restoration of all things, the moment of Christ's triumphant ascension into heaven was and remains the most glorious event to take place in the history of the universe. In the incarnation, heaven comes to earth. But in the ascension, earth, our humanity, goes into heaven. A man bearing our flesh enters the heavenly sanctuary for the first time. Because now when when we die, uh, our bodies go into the ground. Our spirits, though, go to be with the Lord. Our our spirits won't be joined to our bodies until the final resurrection. But Christ, even now, He's our flesh, our kin, our brother. 
He, the man of heaven, is our representative. And now he's raised to heaven to receive the glory which he had with the Father and the Spirit before all time. And what does Jesus do in heaven? Well, theologians have referred to the next step of Jesus' exaltation as his session. Now, that word is familiar to uh, many of us as Presbyterians. Uh, Session comes from the Latin word sessio, which uh, means the act of of seating or being seated. So we speak of of the elders in the church as the session because when the elders uh, do the important work of the church, uh, uh, exercising spiritual oversight over the church and making decisions for her, we come together and we sit down and we deliberate. Well, Jesus' session refers to his being seated at the right hand of the Father. It's something that's a prophesied of the promised rescuer in Psalm 110, where the Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand. Jesus himself applies this passage to himself in several instances, saying that, that he, the Son of Man, would be seated on the throne of heaven and at the right hand of the Father. Paul declares elsewhere that Christ was raised from the dead and seated at the Father's right hand in the heavenly places. The Bible repeatedly makes this point that Jesus has not only ascended, but now he is uh, uh, seated at the Father's right hand. And it signifies, or it says this, it stresses this, to signify the honor granted to Jesus, to, to demonstrate his reign. Because the right hand uh, in the ancient world was the position of power and blessing and authority and dignity. And it's in light of this that the Bible says elsewhere uh, um, uh, about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the Father that that we can better understand what verse 9 means when it says that God has highly exalted him. Paul's language here is superlative. It's not that God has somewhat exalted the Son. It's that God has super-exalted the Son. God the Son who took on the form of a servant, who descended down into death, is now in his humanity exalted as he takes his seat on the throne of heaven. And bestowed on him is the name that is above every name, Paul continues. What is that name, we might ask? Our text doesn't immediately say, it sort of builds our anticipation to to find out what what it is. It's possible that uh, the name in view here is is the name Jesus, which is a a name that speaks to his role as the savior of, of sinners. But a better explanation, I think, is that we're to understand this name not as a personal name, but as a title. And it's not the name of Jesus that is bestowed. Jesus already had that but it's the title of Lord. Resurrected and ascended, God now makes Jesus, the God-man, both Lord and Christ, Peter says at Pentecost. This is what all creatures will openly acknowledge one day, that Jesus Christ is Lord. Seated upon the throne of heaven, highly exalted, the one who bears our flesh and represents us in heaven, he's declared by the Father to be the Lord. The one who has, has stooped low has been lifted high. Now in a world of self-aggrandizing emperors and those who would uh, uh, seek to grab power for themselves, the title Lord here is given ultimately to one who didn't despise the way of weakness or service. 
It's the suffering servant who's declared to be Lord supreme over all creation. Now let's slow down for a second because I don't want us to miss the connection between Christ's exaltation here and the humility that Paul has been urging upon the Philippians and us in this chapter. Paul here has, uh, 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 in this chapter, he's characterized humility as a self-forgetfulness, uh, a self-forgetful service uh, of others. And the challenge is, this is hard to do, as we've admitted. We are self-centered, we're self-protective, self-concerned, self-justifying. There's no question about it. The downward journey of humility is often incredibly hard. And this is where we need to see the exaltation of Christ, not merely as, as an essential uh, part of, of the Christian confession, but we need to press this doctrine into practical service. The exaltation of Christ tells us that all who humble themselves with Christ, according to the mind we've been given in Him, all those who humble themselves with Christ will also be exalted with Christ. And this is based upon a, a basic principle, that the body follows where the head is going. Christ, the, body, or the Bible tells us, is the head of the church, his people, and by faith we're, we're joined to him as, as my, my body is joined to my head. And so when Christ ascends into heaven and he's seated in glory, it tells us that those who follow him downward in humility will also follow him upward in glory also. Yes, Jesus is unique in the sense that he's God. He's the one who's uh, granted the name above every name. He gets the highest glory. But his people get to share in that glory. 2 Timothy 2.12, if we endure, we will also reign with him. Those who are united with Christ and, and then share his humble attitude, now we can look forward to a future exaltation with him. 1 Peter 5, 6, humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God. Why? So that at the proper time, he may exalt you. The message of the Bible is that the path to true, soul-satisfying, lasting glory as blazed first by Jesus, always begins with the journey downward in humility. So yes, we should admit that humility and sacrificial service is hard. Who wants to move towards someone who's hurt them in order to help them? Who wants to trade their Sunday afternoon nap uh, to give their time uh, to someone who needs friendship and encouragement? Do I really want to risk being burned by wading into a messy relational uh, situation uh, um, uh, where, where my help uh, could perhaps be needed? Why should I apologize when that person is just being really difficult? In each of these situations and in countless others, we're faced with a decision. Will I move toward this person to serve them or will I be motivated by personal enjoyment, personal preservation, personal reputation. And since God knows that humility runs against our sinful tendencies, he motivates us here to obedience by showing us that the road to glory passes first through the valley of humiliation. Now there's a fourth and final step in Christ's exaltation. His return, which results in his eternal reign. When he returns to judge the living and the dead, then we will see every knee bow and we will hear every tongue confess that he is Lord. 
that he not only fills the role, Lord, that he not only uh, has the title, Lord, but that he is the Lord. This is his identity, and so that's our next point. And to understand this point, we need to look at Isaiah 45. So if you've uh, got your Bibles, you can uh, turn to Isaiah 45. Isaiah 45 is one of the clearest statements in the entire Bible about the fact that there is only one true God. In this one chapter, Yahweh, that's the covenant name for the God of Israel, uh, translated as Lord in our English Bibles, Yahweh says that he is the only God. He says, he makes that uh, point, uh, uh, I think, seven times uh, in the chapter, four times. He says that he's the only Savior. So if you read Isaiah 45 in its its entirety, you cannot uh, avoid the conclusion that as God says elsewhere in Isaiah that he is the Lord and he will not share his glory with another. It would be untrue. It would be unjust for him to allow any one of his creatures to pretend that he or she is as glorious as he is. And it's in this context that God says in Isaiah 45, verse 23, to me, every knee shall bow and every tongue shall swear allegiance. Or if you're reading the Greek translation of the Old Testament, which Paul would have surely known, every tongue shall confess. Here God says of himself that one day every knee will bow, an indication of worship and submission. And each person will verbally acknowledge that he is the Lord. He'll be glorified in in a universal acknowledgement that he is God, he's the Lord. And with great purpose, Paul takes these words from the Old Testament scriptures and he says that this, Philippians 2, 9-11 is how that, Isaiah 45, will be fulfilled. Jesus will be openly and universally acknowledged as Lord. Not just in his role or in his title, but also in his identity. The whole creation will will see not only that Jesus possesses the title Lord, but that he is the Lord. Ontologically, he is God. The scene that we have before us is a universal, it's a comprehensive one. Notice how Paul inserts, which is not found in Isaiah 45, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. Within these three spheres are are meant to be captured all of creation. No one is excluded. On that day, the knees of myriads of myriads of angels and all of the saints will bow, as will all the knees of every person who is alive on earth at that time. Every soul whose fate is eternal condemnation along with Satan and his demons shall bow their, name, their knees as well to Jesus. They'll acknowledge that he is the Lord God. There's none who will escape this confession. It's inevitable. This doesn't mean that all will do so willingly or that the demons and the damned in hell will have a change of heart. The rest of the Bible helps us to understand that there are some uh, who, will acknowledge that they, uh, who will acknowledge Jesus on that day, who have resisted him their entire lives and will continue to do so. That Christ is Lord. They'll resist that. It'll be a begrudging temptation, but it will come from their lips. In a thrilling passage, Herman Boving puts it this way. All will see him, that is Jesus, with their own bodily eyes and no unbelief, no doubt will be possible then all creation will have to acknowledge that Christ 
is the Lord. They will have to recognize it. If not freely, then compelled. If not voluntarily, then reluctantly. If not with, then against their wills. From the throne in the midst of the heavens throughout all the realms of creation to the very depths of the great abyss, one voice will thunderously be heard. Christ is Lord. The certainty of that day of confession should drive you to confess his name in worship now. To acknowledge that Jesus is Lord and Savior. Maybe you're a child of the church. You know that God uh, must exist. You know who Jesus is. But you're not sure that you want to confess faith in Christ. Or maybe you're someone who has publicly uh, professed faith. Uh, uh, you've, You've said the words, but you haven't truly bent the knee in worship to the Lord. You've given it lip service to Christ being Lord and Master, but then behind the scenes when no one else is looking, you live as if you are the one who gets to call the shots. And that's shown in how you treat people when no one else is watching, what you do with your spare time, what you do with your body. Or perhaps you're here this morning as someone who's not a Christian. Welcome. So glad you're here. Maybe you're one of of the religious nuns who you just don't want to submit uh, to anyone or anything. You don't want to belong to an institution. You don't want to be tied to anyone else's confession. Well, friend, if you're in any of these categories, God in this passage warns you that while there is such a thing as delaying confessing Christ, there's no such thing as avoiding confessing Christ. Don't make a confession falsely. Don't uh, do it for show, but you will do it. So hear hear his warning, but also hear his invitation. Confess Jesus now. Submit your life to him now and hear what Jesus says. Jesus says elsewhere that if you acknowledge uh, his name before men now as your Savior, he will acknowledge your name before his Father as one of his people. He's offered to sinners today. Cry out to him. Confess him as Lord. It's the path to sweetness. Because for those who belong to Jesus and who are placing all their hope in him, confessing him now from a heart of faith, Acknowledging that Jesus is Lord on that day will be a sweet act. It'll be like the bride who uh, delights to say uh, to her groom at the altar, yes, this is my husband, this is my beloved. It'll, It'll be an act, it'll be a confession that just gushes out of us. This is because we're not being forced to bow to a tyrant, to a self serving monster. We're bowing to the exalted servant king, the one who willingly submitted himself to the consequences of our disobedience so that we might submit ourselves to the consequences of his glorious obedience and reign. And on that day, when the servant king is presented in all his beauty, still bearing the marks of his suffering for us, no one will deny him honor. And with hearts of overflowing gladness, we'll get to add our voices to the multitude. Yes, He is God. He is God. Yes, Jesus is God. In the words of an old Dutch hymn, one day all creation shall bow to our Lord. Even now among the angels His name is adored. May we at His coming with glorified throng stand singing His praises in heaven's great song. Jesus, Jesus, Savior adored of all men and angels forever, the Lord.
But that still future consummation of Jesus' exaltation calls for a response from us too. It calls us to worship Christ as the Lord now, today, because of who He is. For Christ the Lord now reigns in heaven. He's resurrected, He's ascended, He's seated and reigning and and victorious. And one day, the truths that we sing about and confess about Him will be demonstrated to be irrefutably true. The world shall see and acknowledge that what we sing about with the angels in heaven now is true. And so, now, today, we worship. Well, we're almost finished, but as we come to the passage's finale, there's one more thing that needs to be noted. The exaltation of the Son is to the glory of God the Father. Even in his exaltation, the Son is not only uh, about seeking his own glory. The Father delighted to lift up his Son. Did you catch that? The Son didn't uh, exalt himself. He didn't demand it for himself. He didn't climb up himself. The Father was pleased to glorify and exalt his Son, serving him, if you will, in this way. And the Son, in turn, uh, as he's exalted, he's pleased for, for, his, uh, uh, for his glory and his exaltation to result in the glory of the Father. So Christian, those who follow Christ's downward uh, path into humility will one day be exalted with him. And one day, we'll get to bask in the unfading glow of this pure selfless fellowship that exists between the Father who delights to exalt His Son and the Son who delights to glorify His Father. And we will find our richest delight in the exaltation of another because we'll be like Jesus. We'll see Him as He is. And we'll forget about our own agenda and we will give ourselves entirely to worship and to wonder and to praise. That is a good day. That is a day to look forward to. May the Lord bring it quickly. Amen. Jesus, Jesus, Savior adored of all men and angels forever the Lord. That's the confession of your church, your people here today. We thank you that by the Spirit you have given us eyes to see Jesus not only as the resurrected one but as the reigning uh, king the servant who humbled himself but who is now exalted and God we pray that you would help us to apply these marvelous words in two ways we pray that you would you would motivate us to humility that you would you would motivate us uh, by this fact that the uh, path to glory goes first uh, down the road into humility. That that would, that would invite us, that would encourage us to have the hard conversations, to move toward people, to serve people, to forget uh, our, 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 or lay aside our own interests uh, for a time. We pray also, Lord, that this picture of Jesus' reign now and his perfected future uh, exaltation at his return that that would also lead us to worship, that we would uh, give of our whole selves in adoration.
to you, Jesus, the one who is the firstborn from the dead. Because to you all, play, all praise is rightly given. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.